And, and you know, because you were geri in geriatrics, you see a lot of people who come into the office with multiple diseases, but they're yes. all related. Yep, you know, and that have... was so striking. And when yeah. I so striking like why doesn't someone just have diabetes why doesn't someone just have yeah. high blood pressure it never yeah. happens they're yes. always in tandem and yes. if they're not on the H&P it's because it's not diagnosed hi I'm Dr. Morgan Nolte geriatric physical therapist weight loss coach and passionate disease prevention expert I used to struggle with emotional eating sugar cravings and consistency then I learned how to lose the mental and physical weight once and for all with a low insulin lifestyle. Each week on the Reshape Your Health podcast, you'll learn simple, actionable, step-by-step -step strategies to help you do the same. If you're ready to create a body and life you love, you're in the right place. Let's get started. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Reshape Your Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Morgan Nolte, and I am so excited for today's guest, Dr. Richard Johnson is a professor of medicine at the university of Colorado, and he's a clinician, educator, and research researcher. He's board certified in internal medicine, infectious diseases, and kidney disease, and is the founding editor of comprehensive clinical nephrology. One of the main textbooks on kidney disease for more than 20 years, he has led research on the cause of obesity and diabetes with special interest in the role of sugar, especially fructose and uric acid. His research has been highly cited, published in top medical journal journals and supported by grants from the NIH. He is well-known in the field, having published over 800 articles and lectured in more than 40 countries. He's authored three other books, including the sugar fix, the fat switch, and most recently, which is how I found him nature wants us to be fat, where he clearly explains how obesity is triggered by a biological switch that makes us insulin resistant. And we have so much to talk about today. So let's go ahead and dive in to what is the survival switch that you talk about in nature wants us to be fat. I think having that baseline understanding of the survival switch, which you speak of so often will be helpful for people who haven't read your book. Well, thank you, Morgan. It's great to be on your show. Uh, this I'm really excited. <laughs> Me too. And yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so, you know, for years and years, that actually goes all the way back to the early 1900s. Uh, people thought that obesity was really uh, just because you're eating too much and exercising too little. And, uh, but it was known for a long time that it couldn't be that simple because it's so hard to, to fix the problem. Um, and so, uh, and although you, people, you can get them to lose weight, uh, a lot of times people gain weight back. So it seemed like there was something else. And in the last few uh, decades, it's been clear that uh, weight is normally tightly regulated and normally we keep our weights just where we want them to be. Uh, but uh, there's, a, there, there's a process where you can suddenly lose control of your appetite and start eating more. And it's associated with a whole bunch of processes, putting on fat, you know, foraging for food, um, developing insulin resistance, raising your blood pressure, we call it the metabolic syndrome, but basically it's a, a process that can be turned on in animals and it's actually like a switch. You can, it's actually turned on or off. Uh, and, and so it, it, when we were studying this, we realized that 
hey, there's actually a biologic switch that animals use to get fat and to become insulin resistant to prepare them for times of food shortage. Mm -hmm. And when we were studying that, then we, we kind of figured out how this switch works. And then we were able to show that that actually seems to be the primary way people gain weight, primary way people become diabetic. And so this was a big discovery. And, um, and it's really uh, been fueled by lots of research and grants to try to figure out what triggers the switch, how to turn it off, and uh, why so many people uh, in this country and worldwide uh, are activating the switch. Mm -hmm. And so just to kind of clarify, you have a table in your book, I believe, that outlines the sequela of when the survival switch is turned on. Can you kind of outline what happens when this survival switch is turned on? Yes. So it's meant to help us. So it, it was developed kind of through evolution and nature. It's almost like an instinct that when animals know that there's going to be a period of food shortage, like, uh, you know, winter is coming. Uh, yeah. Uh, they will actually trigger the activation. Of, they'll trigger the switch so that they can prepare for times of when there's no food. And that switch includes uh, a variety of things. So first, it you become hungry and thirsty. And so you, you have unusual hunger and thirst. And it's associated with the desire to find food. It actually stimulates uh, locomotor activity, which means that, that you are moving more and it's, it triggers your mind to be kind of looking and searching and looking all around and, uh, and, and foraging. Basically it stimulates this foraging response, exploratory behavior and things like that. It also stimulates, um, the, uh, you know, your appetite. So not only are you hungry, but, uh, you can't quell your, your, your appetite, by eating so much is so what we call satiety, you know, normally when you eat, you become full and you say, okay, I'm full. I don't need to eat anymore. This actually blocks that sensation of fullness so that you're still hungry. And that makes you eat more than you normally would. Uh, and then uh, it also works on the energy factories in the, in, in our body. So the energy factories are what make up ATP or the energy that we use and, and, and uh, when it, it stuns that, so you don't make as much energy. Mm -hmm. And in return, uh, the calories are stored as fat, which is a type of stored energy. So uh, you don't have the energy to do what you want to do. So you decrease your, your metabolism. So although you're, you're actively foraging for food, and that uses energy, when you're not foraging, you're actually resting more than you normally do. So you're resting energy metabolism decreases. So the, the net effect of, you know, you're not spending a lot, a lot of energy, you're storing, you're, you're conserving your energy. Right. And I think that, of, oh, go you, ahead. No, you go ahead. I just think of a barren hibernation, you know, yeah. they are actively just resting, yeah. storing. Exactly. Yeah. Although okay. they can wake up very quickly, very easily. <laughs> we study hibernating bears and you have to be very careful when you go into a den. Let me tell you, I have to anesthetize them because if they wake up, they're going to chase you right out of that tent. In fact, the guys that I work with, they put, um, they put a rope around the foot uh, of the person who's going to go into the den and he goes in to dart the bear. And then if the bear wakes up before they, you know, the dart really takes effect and the dart is like an anesthetic. Um, 
And if the bear wakes up, he yells, they pull him out, but but you know, by the foot to get him out there quickly. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. Anyway, um, yeah, but getting back to your question, yes. Um, so it, they drop their energy. They also start making more fat. They produce more fat and they burn less fat. Uh, and they also become insulin resistant, one of your favorite things. Yes. And, um, you know, the thing about insulin resistance is the, uh, it reduces the amount of glucose that's taken up in, this, in the muscle. And our muscle uses a lot of glucose. So it, it decreases the energy needs. I mean, the energy expense. So it, it's a way of conserving energy, right? So there's less energy, less glucose taken up in the muscle. So the muscle uh, doesn't get as much energy that way. Uh, but at the same time, the brain uh, doesn't use so much insulin, so it preserves a lot of the glucose for the brain. So it's sort of a mechanism the animal uses to make sure that it gets enough glucose to the brain so that it can think through things uh, when, when there's potentially not much food around. So animals uh, will, will often become insulin resistant um, uh, when there's less food around. Um, and uh, so grizzly bears will become insulin resistant in the fall right before they hibernate and they'll stay insulin resistant uh, while they're hibernating. So, you know, these are uh, uh, some things that they do. They um, also blood pressure goes up. It's important to have good circulation if food's not around, uh, you know, and, uh, and so all these kinds of things are the switch. And so what happens is this is meant to help you maintain your circulation, keep fuel for your brain, have enough fat so that if there's no food around, you can break it down for energy, you know, stimulate as much food intake as you can now when you can. And so these are all good things that animals, you know, rely on. But if you keep the switch activated, you keep eating, you keep storing more and more fat. Instead of blocking or preventing starvation, now you're accumulating fat and becoming overweight and then obese and then morbidly obese and, and, the, and the insulin resistance. Now, now you're initially a little insulin resistant, but then you get severe and then your, your, your blood glucoses are high during the day and then more and more, not just after you eat, but all the time. And then you become diabetic. And your blood pressure goes up a little bit. It helps that circulation, you know, great. But if it goes up more and more, suddenly you're, you have high blood pressure and you're at risk for strokes and heart failure and kidney disease. And so you can see how something that was meant to be good really uh, in excess becomes, uh, you know, challenging for us. And, and, and you know, because you were in geriatrics, you see a lot of people who come into the office with multiple diseases, but they're yes. all related. Yeah. You know, and that was so striking. And when yeah. I so striking, like, why doesn't someone just have diabetes? Why doesn't someone just have yeah. high blood pressure? It never yeah. happens. They're yes. always in tandem. And yes. if they're not on the H and P it's because it's not diagnosed. Like right. yeah. yeah. Diabetes, high blood pressure, kidney disease, heart disease. This is a cluster and yet we we have these specialties, you know. I'm sorry, I'm <laughs> driving <laughs> on with my yeah. my my issues because I'm a clinician, right? I'm yeah. on the wards. I see these patients, and I, I tell you, you know, we create all these like silos. You know, I'm yeah. an expert on diabetes, and I'm an expert on high blood pressure, and I'm an expert on kidney disease, and all these people have all the same thing. They, they all have these. It's a cluster. 
And, and so, you know, one of the things that I, you know, that came out of our work was how all these diseases are related. Yeah. And yes, genetics may drive you to have fatty liver more than, uh, than obesity. You know, there are things that shift you, but they're all driven by one major process. Mm-hmm. And, and that makes it incredible as a physician. And as a, you know, because if there is one major way that's driving this, think of the power we can have if we can figure out what's causing this and how we can control it. And, um, and I do think, you know, that we're getting closer. I mean, our work really suggests that there is one main pathway and uh, we ha- keep finding proof for it again and again. And now we're, we're taking it into diseases like Alzheimer's disease, vascular dementia, even behavioral disorders. And it all looks like, you know, unfortunately, a lot of it is diet and there's some genetics, but it's involving this pathway. And we've also learned that this switch isn't a on-off switch. It's a dimmer switch. So you can increase it a little bit. You can you can move it up and down. Uh, and so you can really ignite it and you can also uh, just have it on low activation. Yeah. Um, and, and so because of that, it makes it a little trickier. And, you know, the other part that's a little tricky is that there are a lot of foods that activate the switch. And obviously it would be very, very bad or difficult to not eat any of these foods. And so what we really are looking at is identifying what foods you should restrict and some, some foods you should not take at all for sure. But, but basically, um, wisdom is important in this, in this, uh, in these plants. So, uh, but I think we're learning more. Yeah. I want to talk about those foods. I mean, your book dives into fructose and uric acid, and I think people really like actionable things of like, okay, well, what should I eat to avoid turning the switch on? Um, so can you give us some advice on what foods will turn this survival switch on and drive that insulin resistance? I, I mean, there's some big ones that, uh, are really powerful. So, so in general, sugar, table sugar, you know, sucrose, all that beautiful stuff that people make cakes and pastries and desserts from activates the switch. Okay. Sugar activates the switch. And so does high fructose corn syrup. So these are, you know, but I'm not telling you anything that you guys already know. I don't think there's anyone who will say that eating sugar is good um, for your health. Um, You know, I, I eat a, I eat cake on my on, on my birthday or my ch- children's birthday. I, you know, it's that I will do that sometimes. I prefer sugar-free cakes, um, but you know, but sugar is and high fructose corn syrup are two major categories you should watch out for. Now, it turns out that it is related to um, because this is a biologically activated switch. It is turned on when sugar is being metabolized, and particularly the fructose component is the big, the big culprit. And when fructose is metabolized, that activates the switch. And the metabolism of fructose is like a dimmer. So the more fructose this that gets there right then and there, the more the switch will be turned on. Mm-hmm. And so, so it's not just the amount. 
but the speed that makes the difference. This is something that we actually proved. Um, so liquid sugars are absorbed very quickly and they go down the hatch <laughs> very quickly. And so, you know, I mean, when I was a high school student, I was playing tennis, you know, after tennis, we'd go out to A&W root beer and we'd buy these big cartons, these huge cartons of root beer and we'd drink it all at once. You know, in five minutes, it was gone. And little did I know then that then I was thinking, you know, this is a treat after playing tennis. But, you know, uh, now I know that liquid sugar, it just floods the liver and the liver's where the switch activates. So when you, when you mm -hmm. eat food, it's absorbed through the intestines and gets to the liver. The liver's sort of like the, the kingpin, that kind of the kingpin of metabolism. It's the main guy that's, um, you know, in, involved with metabolizing fructose and sugar. And so when the sugar gets there, uh, the fructose is broken down and generates uric acid and that activates the switch. So liquid sugar is really, really bad. And so um, that's the one food I would tell you, absolutely do not drink fluids with a lot of sugar in it. And that would include soft drinks, power drinks, uh, you know, um, and, and, and these, and like fruit juice, I would minimize. Mm -hmm. um, Fruit juice is a little complicated because it has a lot of good things from fruit, but um, and not all studies show fruit juices are bad. We know that it's probably related to some fruit juices that have more fructose and less of the good stuff. So apple juice is kind of high on the list there. I would watch out for that one. But juices in particular shouldn't drink a lot. Now, sports drinks, like, uh, you know, there's a lot of sports drinks. You know, it, it's a little bit mixed because uh, when you're out exercising, you you can burn a lot of glucose. Uh, and so people can get low glucose and, and glucose also helps uh, to absorb salt. And when you're dehydrated, you know, like from exercising, you need to get that salt absorbed. So sports drinks have salt in the water, uh, not a lot, but some. And they have much less um, sugar. So it's typically uh, the ones that are less than 4% um, tend to be uh, safer. And I actually uh, do believe that if you're out there exercising a lot, uh, sports drinks that have 4% or less sugar and ideally 2% or less fructose uh, are probably good. Um, but uh, it's, an, you know, don't don't drink sports drinks uh, as a something where you're sitting on the sofa. <laughs> I want, you know, because unless you can get one that doesn't have much fructose in it. But anyway, uh, so uh, the number one thing to take home message is soft drinks. And power drinks and energy drinks. Don't drink those when they have a lot of sugar in it. Okay, just don't. It's going to cause problems. Uh, there, there are papers out there that soft drinks shorten your lifespan, that soft drinks cause diabetes and obesity. Uh, there's tons of it. There's data when you put people on soft drinks. I did a study with, with fructose in a drink. I, made, I did the study before I was so wise 
I'm not that wise, but uh, <laughs> I'm wiser than now than I was then. And what we did is we put gave uh, healthy people fructose, uh, high concentrations, and I created metabolic syndrome in them in two weeks. Normally, that takes like you know years, twenty years to get. 25 years before you start putting on the weight, but I could do it in two weeks with soft drinks. Of course, I was given the like the equivalent of six 20 ounce uh, soft drinks a day. So it was a lot, but uh, it only took two weeks. And the good news is we had the, the, the wisdom to realize that this wasn't good. And we stopped the drinks and early, you know, it, they everyone reversed. Mm-hmm. So um, it's reversible. And, yeah. uh, and uh, you know, it's harder to reverse it when you're 70 years old and you've been overweight for 30 years, but there are ways to help reverse it in everyone. And, yeah. uh, and so, but anyway, soft drinks, they're the worst. Um, fruits are fine because they're only four grams or five grams. Some of them, some of the fruits are, have more. So in my book, I kind of go into detail, which fruits are good Thank and which you. aren't and, uh, but but basically, uh, in the clinical trials we were in, fructose, uh, f- natural whole fruits actually confer a benefit, uh, even though they contain a little bit of fructose, they contain vitamin C and potassium fiber. So they're, they're, they're actually okay. They're good. I, I recommend if you're like really craving for something sweet, eat a, eat a whole fruit, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if that happens to you. And um, don't don't go for a candy bar. <laughs> so that you know uh, what else? Well, um, you can also activate the switch by eating foods that raise blood glucose and your insulin resistance. Being insulin resistant, you're you're like in a. If you're insulin resistant, you're sort of uh, already activated the switch. Basically, the switch is a little bit turned on and it's going to stay on, especially if you eat uh, high glycemic carbs. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, things like bread, potatoes, rice, tortillas, chips, cereal, all those things that break down very easy, the starchy foods that break down really easy, they release glucose, which is a, actually is sort of a good guy in many ways. But when the glucose levels go up, not only do they stimulate insulin, which isn't ideal, you know, in terms of weight gain, because insulin does promote fat. But the real problem is that the, when the glucose goes up, it gets converted to fructose and the body can make fructose and it makes it from glucose. And if the glucose levels get high, it says, okay, I'm going to convert some of those over to fructose. And then when that happens, now you're activating the switch. And so if you give animals glucose, you can make them very, very fat. But if you block them from making fruit fructose, or if you block the fructose metabolism, they can, they can eat starch and they don't get as fat and they don't get insulin resistant and they don't get uh, diabetic and they don't get fatty liver and so forth. So a lot of what makes the starches bad is, insulin resistance is bad and the insulin resistance uh, is due to the fact that the glucose is being converted to fructose. That's the main reason. There's also the insulin pathway too. Anyway, these two pathways are are bad. And so your 
recognition, Morgan, the, of the importance of insulin resistance and the importance of trying to do carb restriction, uh, especially for high glycemic carbs, that is at the core of, mm -hmm. of how to stay healthy. That is at the absolute core. And yes, reducing sugar is very important because that's the main source of fructose in the diet. Reducing high glycemic carbs is the main, is another major source of fructose. Uh, and it's from what we make though. But yeah, uh, those are the two big ones. Uh, but there are some other little tricks. Um, and some of the other tricks are to reduce salt because salt, when you get thirsty, the salt actually acts to help convert the glucose to fructose. So if you're on, if you're eating carbs and you're eating salt, you really activate the switch. Interesting. The, yeah. Like the so salty foods. Yeah, it's a double whammy. So mm -hmm. French fries. Okay. I don't know if you know this, but like back in the um, 1800s, 1700s, the Irish were eating a pretty high potato diet. I mean, they were, their potatoes were their major staple, but obesity wasn't that common. And so uh, they, you know, uh, there are lots of reasons for it. They were working outside and exercising a lot. They, there was a food shortages during the uh, Irish potato famine. Uh, and there were less potatoes there too. <laughs> and, uh, but, but anyway, um, but it's really not just the glycemic foods. It's like glycemic foods plus salt equals bad news. And so the French fries, I don't know if, uh, if you ever was a loved French fries, but when I was a kid, I just loved French fries. And I still like French fries, but I know that they're not good for me. But um, it's something about that fat and the salt and the carbs that is just very delicious. And um, and so, you know, you end up eating a whole bag of French fries like in a minute. It's gone. <laughs> it's gone. My, my, my uh, you know, I find I have two kids and like one of them absolutely loves french fries and um and i tell them you know that it's not that that good for them but they uh they still will you know they're kids and so um so anyway so uh but yeah the salt uh activates the, a process that converts the starch in the potato to fructose and then that makes you hungry and then the fat of the french fry makes you want to eat a lot uh, or gain a lot. What will not doesn't make you want to eat a lot. The the fat is a high calorie source. So when you're hungry from the fructose and you add it to high fat, which is full of it, of calories, boy, you can get fat quickly. And it's an inflammatory fat that those yes are fried in. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And I and read then, um metabolical was what I read right after yours, and I read in that that the more times they use that oil to fry the fries, the more trans fats are created in that oil. Oh, so now yes. it's just, and by the way, yes, I did like fries runza crinkle fries. I know you are, you're in Colorado. Did you ever go to a runza in Nebraska? No, I, I miss out on that one, but I loved McDonald's fries. Oh yeah. So runza was my go-to with their ranch. They do something to their ranch, but I don't do it anymore because of those unhealthy oils and all these things yes. we're talking about. But I want to talk about too, um, uric acid and then AMP, IMP and TMAO. I think 
those are some like nutrient questions that I wanted to ask. And then I'm hoping yeah. that we can talk about central insulin resistance too. Um, so do you want to touch on those nutrients and, um, specifically also alcohol, obviously we have to touch on that. And yeah. I think it was fascinating how you pointed out why beer, um, drives insulin resistance and the survival switch more than, um, non, you know, other alcoholic yeah. beverages. That was really yes. interesting. Yeah. Thanks. So, you know, originally when, uh, when we were studying this, uh, everything was focused on carbs and, um, I, realized that fructose was bad and glucose could be converted to car, uh, fructose. And so, uh, and I, and the low carb diet is just a wonderful, uh, diet and, and keto diets. They're, they're great. Although, um, you know, there are issues with high fat and high protein. So, um, and I go into all the details, so it's not like the perfect diet, but mm -hmm. they're really good. And especially short term. So, uh, you know, so, but the, I knew that this pathway that we're describing this biologic switch is initiated by, um, by the fructose, but it's the fructose makes uric acid. And then the uric acid is inside the cell and it does a lot of these things that cause the problems. And when you, you know, if you're a uric acid expert, and you say, well, what raises uric acid? You can say, well, yes, sugar does, fructose does, but there are other things that do it too. There's alcohol that does it. And there's foods called purines, purine rich foods. And purines are, um, they're kind of like breakdown products uh, from the nucleus of a cell. So when you eat, whenever you eating food, you know, like if it's plants or animal foods, um, it's basically cells uh, broken down muscle and so forth from it's turned into protein and chicken breast, you know, has um, protein in it, but it also has cellular nuclei, what we call, you know, DNA and RNA. And so all foods have some of these purines because purines are kind of the breakdown products of these DNA and RNA. So there's purines in everything we eat, right? But um, you know, some foods are, have a lot of nucleic material in it. Like yeast is, yeasts are almost pure nuclei. I mean, it's basically mm -hmm. like uh, eating purines. And so uh, beer has uh, a lot of brewer's yeast in it. So it has a lot of these uh, uh, things that can make uric acid. So anyway, so, uh, you know, a lot of people have said, well, uh, if you have gout, which is this disease associated with high uric acid, where you get arthritis, and they say, well, you should be on a low purine diet. You should reduce your purine intakes because that can make uric acid. And the big ones are beer. That's like the big one. Uh, but also things like uh, shellfish, uh, like uh, shrimp, <laughs> which I love, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, lobster and crab. And all those things that we just uh, die for when we, when I, whenever I get an opportunity, I go, oh, wow, I love that food. Uh, and then, uh, you know, some steaks and stuff, but particularly processed meats have more of this because uh, the it releases when they kind of treat it, you know, with different things that often can release some of this stuff. Uh, and so, you know, things that a lot of like the paleo people say, oh, you know, I'm eating a lot of meat and protein. Don't tell me that meats can contain purines, but some of them do. And 
it turns out that um, they tend, you know, especially seafood, uh, cellular fish. I mean, fish that have a lot of nuclei like mackerel and anchovies mm. <laughs> and things that we like, you know. So, uh, so we were thinking, well, maybe, maybe those foods could activate the switch. And, um, and it turns out that you can kind of, and there's also like a taste for these foods. And yeah. yeah. And so we have these different tastes like sweet and salt. There's one called umami, which is like a savory taste. And I mean, you know, like when you take that rich beet sauce and you simmer it and it gets really rich and, and it's delicious and it's like broken down products from, you know, the, the sauce, you know, from this rich little gravies. They're, they're filled with these purines and they fit and the, they create this delicious taste that we pick up called umami. So, you know, so when we started doing this, uh, you know, we looked in the literature and they go, well, umami is one of the most beautiful tastes and people love it. But no one really talked about it as causing obesity. It's just like thought to be kind of a healthy taste. And, uh, and, the, and the umami is actually that taste is for a particular substance called glutamate. And glutamate's an amino acid that's released from these proteins, but it's it's stimulated further by um, these purine products. And remember, all foods have purines, but the purine products are called AMP and INP, and they're kind of breakdown products uh, from ATP and from DNA. And, and it turns out that in the biologic switch, the biologic switch doesn't only involve uric acid, but AMP and IMP are in the switch. They're actually part of what drives it. So it's kind of scary that they're, you know, that they are involved in the umami taste and why we like gravies and shrimp and anchovies and all these things like that we love. And so, um, so we started testing this in animals and we found to our uh, chagrin, yeah. That and I do mean chagrin. Yeah. That these umami foods not just stimulate taste, but they actually activate the switch and make animals gain weight. And the good side of this, uh, Morgan, is that we don't eat a lot of umami. We really don't eat a lot of umami, so it's not really by itself enough to cause obesity, unless you're a beer drinker, in which case it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, I mean, if you're, I, I, I did have a medical resident working with me once who went on a low carb diet, but he decided that fried shrimp was, um, was okay. Cause he, there was, a uh, in his family, there, there was a shrimp, there were shrimp farmers, I guess they're called, but, um, uh, and so he was getting a lot of shrimp, uh, every day. And, um, I can tell you that it didn't, even though he was on a, uh, you know, a diet, a low carb diet, he, he got overweight and it was related to, uh, I'm sure this umami food, mm-hmm. but anyway, uh, so you can overdo it with shrimp. Uh, you can overdo it with, um, beer, uh, alcohol, believe it or not. Um, also it kind of generates fructose and activates the switch as well. Uh, and it breaks down to umami type foods when it's metabolized. So, uh, a severe alcohol, a lot of alcohol can be associated with developing, you know, fatty liver mm-hmm. and uh, high blood pressure and high triglycerides and sort sort of like the switch. I so, thought that uh, was like the mm-hmm. most fascinating part to me was 
we, you know, we have the, the liver disease from alcohol, but what I don't think I realized until I read your book was it's not actually the alcohol. It's the fructose being produced by the, um, you know, digestion of the alcohol. Yes. During the digestion of the alcohol fructose is made and, and to be, we've actually, um, we haven't published our paper yet. Um, but we can, but others have done similar studies and have blocked it. Um, if you block fructose, uh, you can prevent alcohol-induced liver disease. So all whenever I go on rounds at the hospital and I have to see someone with alcohol-induced liver disease, I try to tell them, don't drink soft drinks because they often, alcohol, the craving of alcohol is really linked with the craving of sugar. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when people are quitting alcohol, they often start drinking a lot of soft drinks. But if... Um, that may be a, a, a viable alternative if you're trying to get off alcohol because it's such a bad thing. But uh, drinking sugary drinks isn't good for you, as I told you. And it's certainly not good if you have liver disease. So because sh- sugary liquids really cause fatty liver uh, and liver disease and alcohol really causes uh, fatty liver and liver disease and the two are linked. Uh, so if you're in the hospital with liver disease, uh, you shouldn't be drinking soft drinks. Yeah. And then the last one I wanted to ask about was TMAO. Can you describe what that is and how it's linked to the survival switch? Yes. So, you know, so it is produced. It's a complicated substance that kind of the precursor is produced in the liver from the, I mean, excuse me, in the gut from the microbiome. And then it's kind of fully converted to TMAO once it gets absorbed. And um, it's basically a chemical substance that turns out to be linked with heart disease and with poor outcomes. And so uh, it's been associated with the eating of red meats, for example, but Mm -hmm. um, it doesn't have to come from um, just red meats, uh, it, it, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's linked with the switch and it's linked with umami, but, um, you know, it's, it's become a candidate for, uh, being involved in causing cardiovascular disease. And it's been linked, uh, like in patients with kidney disease, it can be a real problem because it can, uh, get retained a bit, um, because you can't get rid of it as well. Uh, and it, it's been associated with the eating of, of very rich foods. Interestingly, we did a study in bears, hibernating bears. I love that. And uh, when they're, uh, they will make a little TMAO in, 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 during the summer uh, when they're out eating a lot of foods. Uh, and then they switch when they hibernate, kind of turn off the TMAO completely uh, and they're, they're making other stuff, which actually is good, you know, a, a substance called betaine. Mm-hmm. So anyway, so we're, we're trying to learn more about it. I, um, I don't know that much about TMAO. Um, it's something that I'm trying to learn more about. I think that, uh, when I read the literature, it's not as clear to me how it works. Um, it seems like, um, people are linking it with disease more than they are proving that it causes disease. It is a complicated topic. And I think especially around red meat, like, like you said, like there's a lot of controversy around that and they kind of throw out TMAO and red meat Yeah, and I'm like, okay, like I can buy it, but I still kind of want to see a little bit more clear. 
I'm mean, not, I am not anti-red meat. Yeah. Um, and um, if you're on a paleo diet, uh, I'm a little bit against processed meats, Ditto. Like yep. bacon and, uh, you know, so processed foods are, have just too much other stuff in it and they, mm-hmm. they've been treated. Uh, but regular red meat, I, I'm not anti-red meat. But on the other hand, if you've got kidney disease and you're eating a lot of meat, it will definitely increase your risk for kidney disease. If you're eating a lot of red meat, it will raise your uric acid a little bit, and that may not be so good. If you're on a low-carb diet, it may not be bad. But um, but it, it, if you're on a, a car, it, it, the, the, the uric acid acts like the salt to turn on this switch to, to help convert glucose to fructose. So, um, uh, and uh, we are, there's this... Um, epidemic going on of kidney disease in cats. Do you know about this? No, I don't. So there's a lot of domestic cats developing kidney disease. Uh, It's like really a significant issue. Uh, And there's studies going on trying to figure out why the cats are getting kidney disease. And uh, it's been carried over. It's actually not just domestic cats. It's wild cats um, or big cats uh, like tigers. Uh, cheetahs and uh, lions and and um, and it's uh, being seen a lot in the zoos and in the safari parks. Nuts is much in the wild, but it seems to be a, a worldwide problem. And um, I'm working with a group in Vienna uh, where they think that it might be from red meat versus white white meats. And so there's actually a study ongoing to try to figure this out. Um, it turns out, I think that, um, you know, wild, wild game is different from the kinds of meats that they're being fed. And a lot of the meats that these animals are being fed in zoos and so forth uh, may have other things in the meat. Um, and so part of it could be something like that. Uh, but uh, there may, it may be a, a umami pathway or, you know, a uric acid pathway too. Red meats will raise uric acid more than white meats in general. Uh, so it could be something along that line. It could be the iron. If there's a lot of iron, it can cause stimulate oxidative stress. And part of it might be related to the combination of, of the meats with not drinking enough water and yeah. with hotter climate. So, uh, it, you know, it's not so clear that it's the red meat. And, right. uh, and uh, so it's a hypothesis, but it may turn out that it's, it's dehydration and not drinking enough water because I can create kidney disease in animals by, by uh, just dehydrating them and not giving them so much water uh, and, and exposing them to heat. So it could be something along that line too. Yeah. And in your book, you did such a great job outlining why dehydration is such a direct cause of excess weight. And so if you guys want to learn more about that, definitely go get his book and read about the dehydration. But I really want to pick your brain a little bit more with the time that we have left on central insulin resistance and, um, how sugar affects the brain, both from a behavioral standpoint, like ADHD, um, and dementia, Alzheimer's disease and vascular dementia, which I know could be a whole episode in and of itself, but let's try to condense your knowledge and experience here and kind of share some insight and connections on sugar and brain health. Well, it's a big deal. Um, it turns out that, um, 
there's insulin resistance in, you know, the muscle and so forth that's important in the development of diabetes. But it's become apparent that people who are developing dementia often develop insulin resistance in the brain. And uh, they're not, they're having trouble uh, burning glucose in the brain. And um, I've been studying this quite a bit. And it turns out that uh, when you, you, you can produce fructose, not just like in your liver and, and your tissues, but you can produce fructose in the brain. Uh, and when you do produce fructose in the brain, it's metabolized there and it causes some of these same issues, it, you know, this foraging response and the way, and it reduces the energy needs of the brain. So it actually, re, uh, it, what it does is it suppresses the, uh, the mitochondria. So the mitochondria in the brain are very important to produce energy to help us think. Uh, and this tries to actually reduce the amount of energy produced as a way to kind of help conserve calories, but it can reduce, you know, 20% of, of all the energy we use is, is from the brain is using the brain. And so if you, if you're on a, if you're worried that there's no food around, you do want to suppress some of the energy production in the brain. So it will suppress those areas that are involved in self-control and things like that. So it can help you, um, forage more because when you're foraging you you may have to go into dangerous areas and they don't want you to go hey i don't want to go in there uh -huh. <laughs> it's a little dangerous they don't want that so they'll suppress that part of the brain uh so they can save energy that way but at, at the same time stimulate foraging but the trouble is when you're chronically doing that and you're suppressing atp production in those brain cells over time the, the mitochondria get weakened and they start uh, getting inflamed and then you're not producing the energy all the time. And then that, you know, begins with, you know, it starts with the areas with self-control and the areas with the recent memory. Because, you know, it, it, it turns out that if you're going to be going foraging, you don't want to remember too vividly how dangerous it could be. <laughs> so, uh, you know, so anyway, so what happens is that it hits those sites first and, um, and suddenly you're having trouble with your recent memory, you're having trouble with controlling your behaviors, and, and this uh, can lead to behavioral disorders, it can lead to uh, dementia, and, um, and fructose levels are high in the brains of Alzheimer's patients, and uh, there's evidence that the switch is being turned on in there. And so, um, and this, this whole issue of the loss of mitochondria and the insulin resistance, this is how fructose is working, right? And fructose is there. And so, it, you know, it's very likely playing a role. And um, so the question is, you know, how do you make fructose in the brain? And uh, when you eat fructose, not very much of it gets to the brain. It's all kind of burned in the liver. So there must be a, a, a way to stimulate fructose production in the brain. And the easiest way is with high glycemic carbs, just like what you're talking about. So if you eat bread, rice, potatoes, and your blood glucose goes up, that triggers fructose production in the brain, in, including in humans, and it's been well documented. Um, and so we know that, um, that you can produce fructose in the brain when you're diabetic and when you have high glucose levels, like following eating uh, cake <laughs> mm -hmm. or drinking soft drinks. So um, that's why things like a continuous glucose monitor yeah. might be very useful and trying to keep your blood glucose levels uh, on the low side 
um, not eating a lot of bread. If you're going to eat bread, you know, put a little avocado on it because it decreases how quickly the glucose is released. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there's all these little tricks or buy keto bread um, and, uh, and, or try to, you know, or try to, uh, to get keto bagels or something, these yeah. bagels that, that won't raise the glucose as much because that, that will help prevent making fructose in the brain. And uh, if you put a person on a high sugar diet where their the glucose levels are going up after a few weeks, um, especially like in an animal, they'll have trouble remembering how to get through a maze. Mm -hmm. So you can show effects just in a few weeks uh, and it's completely reversible early on. But, um, uh, you know, it's sort of scary. So uh, glucose and salty foods are also linked with uh, dementia now, uh, high salt diets. And, and I think it's because the salt also, the, when the salt concentrations go up in the blood, the brain will see that. So it's going to use that to convert uh, glucose to fructose in the brain as well. So high glycemic foods plus salt, uh, sugar, um, you know, has both glucose and fructose. So, and the fructose stimulates this pathway too. Uh, so it keeps, you know, so basically, uh, I think we can do a lot to help people, um, uh, especially, you know, because the, the dementia is one of the worst of all diseases. It's, once you have it, it's very hard to reverse it. But, um, and so if we can figure out how to prevent it or, help people when they're just beginning to have trouble by, you know, by getting them on the right kinds of diets, uh, it could have a fantastic benefit. Mm -hmm. So for all of you out there who, you know, want to be able to stay really sharp until your nineties, uh, you know, try to avoid eating a lot of high glycemic carbs or eat them very slowly so that they release the glucose slowly mm -hmm. so that you don't get that that peak, those rises, and, you know, consider getting a glucose monitor or just, uh, or maybe even better, just live on a low carb diet. I know. And I think a lot of people come from like Weight Watchers where they learn that fruit is free and, you know, fruit has health benefits, but one of our members had a, a CGM on and she said, oh my gosh, you know, a peach yeah. really spiked my blood sugar. And I yeah. said, yes, that's evidence that fruit is not free. And it's like, yes, it's so true. It's yeah. also like bananas, you know, yeah. I love bananas. I put them on oatmeal sometimes. And uh, I, I had a CGM myself and I go, oh my gosh, I'm really sensitive to bananas. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so uh, we, we talk about fruit for the fructose content, but actually a lot of them will raise glucose a fair amount and uh, peaches and bananas really do. Mm -hmm. um, and there are other ones too. And so, but yeah, and there's always like ways, you know, at, like you said, adding some fiber to it, adding some fat to it, eating it slowly, eating it at the end of the meal, but yeah, there's ways. But the last question that I wanted to ask was related to sugar and like ADHD and behavioral issues. I have a two-year-old and a four-year-old. And so I see all the time how, what an inclination they have towards sugar. And I have to constantly, oh. I feel like I'm walking that line of not trying to make them feel so restricted from it, that it's going to backfire. And then they're going to want it all the time, right. but at the same time, help them develop a moderate attitude towards it. And right. um, because I know, you know, and I've, I've learned it's even really more true. in your book, but like, tell us just real quick, what is that connection? Well, uh, so as I mentioned, uh, the switch stimulates foraging. 
and uh, foraging is a thing where you um, you're, you're searching, you're running around <laughs> looking for food, and uh, it also stimulates um, you know uh, kind of looking quickly and not deliberating and trying to make rapid assessments. And, um, and that can lead to less attention on one thing. You tend to be looking everywhere. And, and uh, absolutely, when children are given a, a lots of sugar, they, the parents will report that they become hyperactive, that they uh, you know, can't focus. And, uh, and uh, so I got interested in this as a potential driver of ADHD. And in the literature, there was this, these arguments saying that sugar couldn't be proven to do that. And that if you gave artificial sugars that you could sometimes see the same effects. And I go into it in great detail in my book uh, and yeah. I don't think we have time to do it, but it, it, there's a difference between um, acute and chronic effects of sugar. And yes, acute effects of sugar can do this, but if you're on sugar for a long time, you'll, you'll carry some of these acti activities chronically and you won't necessarily be able to show an exacerbation when you get sugar. So once you've been on sugar a long time and your uric acid levels are high and so forth, it may be yeah. hard to, to show an effect of acute sugar like you could when in the very beginning. Yeah. Um, and, and the linkage, when you look at the pathways and the molecular mechanisms and the and the special imaging and everything, it's really strong. <laughs> it's like strongly suggests that sugar intake is playing a role in ADHD, as well as in a couple other behavior disease associated conditions. And so I've written about it, published on it. Uh, and I do think that um, the data is there, that that, uh, that sugar probably has a main major role in ADHD. Uh, sugar intake increased with the rise in ADHD. Uh, and so uh, in your kids, what I would tell you to do is, uh, you know, try to avoid giving them liquid sugar, like the fruit juices. Yeah, that we don't do any liquid have. sugar. Yeah, the fruit juice is really bad. And, um, you know, I would, I would let them, you know, have a little bit of sugar here and there yep. because uh, otherwise you're right. They could, it could backfire. Mm -hmm. uh, I would let them have cake. Uh, you know, mm -hmm. if you can get a healthier cakes, you know, that would be a good move. And, and then, uh, you know, obviously it's, it's education as they get older and they understand things better. Um, I worked with a group where we, we would take a glass of water and you say, you know, how, you know, do you like, uh, do you like uh, soft drinks? Yes. Okay. Here's a soft drink. Here's a glass of water. Do you mind if we put, we're going to show you how much sugar is in that by adding it to this glass of water and you end up adding 11 teaspoons. And when you add it, it's so sweet. No one really likes it. And yet that's what's in, that's what's in the soft drink, but because they have carbonation and all these other things, you don't really uh, recognize how, how much sugar there is. That's there. interesting. But yeah. Wow. You can yeah. I go to uh, elementary schools actually. And, and sometimes we'll try to teach them to read labels and, you know, show them these little tricks to, to really understand how that sugar <laughs> can be in these drinks and soft drinks. Yeah. Well, I, it's really cool to hear that. And I know that you do a lot of podcasts and you have your books and your research. And I just know that you have a big heart for this to share the information. Yeah. And I wanted to thank you for your expertise. I really 
um, hold your book up there. Everyone knows I love Dr. Fung's work and it's like, that's yeah. right up there with Dr. Fung's work in my opinion. So it's kind of a staple book, especially in regards to fructose and uric acid. So I really would encourage people to go buy nature wants us to be fat. Um, and then can you let us know where they can learn more about you and your work? Yeah. So I do have a website. It's drrichardjohnson.com. Uh, I also, I have, um, and Instagram, Dr. Richard J. Johnson. Uh, and then, you know, my book is pretty much available everywhere. Yep. Uh, so you can get it through bookstores and through the web, you know, Amazon, Books A Million, <laughs> Barnes & Noble. So, um, and I appreciate being on your show, Morgan. And um, really, I had fun. Me too. Thank you so much, Dr. Rick. And yep. we'll talk soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Reshape Your Health podcast today. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, leave a rating and review, and don't forget to tell a friend. To learn more and connect online, check out the links in the show notes.